name is Bobby from Alcoholic. Thank you. I'd like to thank the committee, you know, Jesse and John, for inviting me to come here. Thank Kerry for picking me up. He picked me up early yesterday. We toured the battlefield. And, you know, this is the first time I've ever been in the state of Montana, and it's, uh, you know, it's freaking beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, I live right in the heart of the city, so it's, to me, to, to see this stuff, it's really, really gorgeous. Um, I got a, uh, my sobriety date is uh, June 2nd, 1988. Uh, I got a home group. McKean Street Miracle Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet at St. Agnes Hospital, brought in McKean Street in South Philadelphia, seven nights a week at seven o'clock. If you're in the neighborhood, please stop by. We'd love to have you. We'll go out for cheesesteaks afterwards. <laughs> Chapter five of the big book is real clear what I'm supposed to do. I am supposed to tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you know, before I go any further, I had that nice welcome. So back home, I got his, you know, we don't get that high and drag that out. What we say is, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, we've been saying that a long time, long before that commercial came along and everyone started making fun of us, but I'm doing good. How you doing? <laughs> I was born and raised in a very blue-collar ethnic neighborhood. I got seven brothers and sisters. My mother was pregnant for nine years. Seriously. <laughs> We're like one after another. I, my, my sister's 11 months older than me, and I'm uh, 11 months older than, than my next sister. And uh, you know what? Like everyone else and uh, you know, the other speakers alluded to, I never felt a part of. And that's pretty tough to do because we've got 10 people living in a small three-bedroom row home. And a row home, I mean, you guys seen like the movies and TV. It's just a bunch of houses stuck together, you know. The yuppies came in, they call them townhouses, but it's a row home. They're, they're small. It's, <laughs> there's like 40 on one side of the street, and like 12 feet across the street, there's another 40. It's just the way it was. And uh, So you get to be close with your neighbors, whether you want to or not. But uh, we the small, uh, there's 10 of us in a small three-bedroom row home, and I never fought a part of. And that would be true my entire life, even into early recovery. There was no booze at all in my house. My father did not drink, and my mother could not drink. My mother suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse of prescription medications, so we had no booze at all in the house. But my grandparents around, lived around the corner from us, and they had a bar in their basement, and that's where all the family functions were held, you know, the graduations, the christenings, and things like that, and that's where I had my very first drink. I didn't get drunk the first time I drank. I remember what it was, though. I was running around, and I was just a kid, you know, seven, eight, whatever it was, but I remember what it was. It was Valentine beer. And I remember that because Ballantyne used to sponsor the Phillies. And I remember going up to Connie Mack Stadium with my father in the old scoreboard in right center field. And uh, I was running around the bar pe uh, polishing off the half empties. Or the half fulls, I guess it all depends on your perception. <laughs> but I'm polishing off the empties, and my uncles, and I had tons of them, you know, they were looking, hey, look at him, look at Bobby. And that's why I craved the attention. Like I said, I might have got a slight buzz, but that was irrelevant. It was, it was the recognition I got that was important. And, uh, you know, uh, and I loved my grandparents, you know, and it was, uh, you know, and the kids in my neighborhood, they used to make fun of my grand, my grandparents were immigrants, and they used to talk funny. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone in the neighborhood talked funny. I mean, you had, 
one accent or another. But man, I loved them. They were great. And they had some great parties there. My drinking kind of really took off in high school. Most of the kids from the neighborhood had went to the local diocese in high school. But my parents had sent me to a private Jesuit high school. And right away I felt kind of different there. Because most of the kids who went to this school were from affluent families from the suburbs. It was just me and a couple other dirtballs in the neighborhood who went there. And a lot of these kids were getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles. But we used to walk to the school because it wasn't that far. And right away we had some sort of reputation. Because this was a pretty rough neighborhood. And a lot of these kids, it was their first introduction to the inner city. So we used to walk to school. And we had reputations. And we used to take, uh, take advantage of those reputations. You know, those parents, they were dropping their kids off in their luxury automobiles. And me and the guys from, were in, from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. And I knew that was wrong. And I had a lot of nicknames. And one of those nicknames was Crazy Coil. And I would do things in my gut that I knew was wrong. You know, I, I had the values instilled in me by my parents and by the nuns as a kid. And I knew the difference. But I, I did it anyway because the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else. I was also your entertainment committee. And I did things, and I, did things I was terrified to do. But it was all facade. You know, I couldn't let anybody know. So it's September, it's football season, I'm there about two or three weeks, there's an away game, we rent a bus, there's drinking, there's fighting, there's police activity, man it was fun. <laughs> and we all had to go sit at the disciplinary the following Monday, the first day back to school. And he had about ten of us lined up outside his office. Now they were all upperclassmen, it was just me and another kid from the neighborhood, we were the only two freshmen. And he made a beeline, came right, the, right up to us, he said, what's with you guys? You guys here two, three weeks and you're getting this jackpot already? And I just shrugged my shoulders, I said, you know father, just one of them things. And you know what, that would be the story, uh, the pattern that I would set. It didn't take me long to signs up situations. I really didn't, wasn't really, didn't push myself in the academics, so I didn't hang out with the AP kids. I myself wasn't an athlete, so I didn't hang out with the jocks. I, I, I got in a situation, I, I would get at the places quickly and I could size up situations. I was about drinking and acting up. And it was only, I was there about a week or so, and we had the runner to school, I mean, which is unheard of a freshman. But we found out who was about what, and we took advantage of that. Uh, my drinking, you know, it kind of progressed, you know, and uh, mostly on the weekends, you know, but uh, I, I was acting up and getting little jams here and there. It was funny, my sophomore year at the prep, now this school's in a pretty rough neighborhood, like I said, it's in North Philadelphia, it's on the corner of 18th and Gerard. Four blocks away is the subway. Now, at the end of the day, a lot of these kids used to take the trolley, the four blocks to catch the subway, because they were scared to walk out Gerard Avenue to catch the subway. Well, three blocks away on the corner of 15th and Gerard, there was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. And when I was a sophomore, I was a regular at the Ebony. Now, I went there for a couple different reasons. You know, they had cold beer, they had dancers, and they had all these other things. But the real reason I went, because I was, I was a show-off. And again, I went to show off to these kids how nuts I was and how tough I was. I'm not a tough guy, I never was. And I can now tell you, every time I strolled out Gerard Avenue and sat in the Ebony, I was terrified. But again, appearance, the importance for me to be accepted by you and, and all these appearances outweighed any fears I had. And it was funny because as you can tell by the name of the bard, like they knew that I wasn't from the neighborhood. And I'm, and I'm what? I'm what? 16, I probably look like I'm 12 and I got a little blazer, but they served me. They figured if I was crazy enough to go there, they might as well serve me. It came time to graduate from the prep and I really had no desire to further my education and I knew I couldn't stay home because it would be hell to catch because my parents didn't really have a lot with all them kids. They made a lot of sacrifices and education was a big deal. So they made a lot of sacrifices for material things to push us to private school. So I knew I couldn't stay home because it would be hell to catch. I couldn't get an apartment because I had no job, I had no money, no skills. I had an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy and uh, 
four of my uncles had, had, were graduates there. But I knew I couldn't go there because in my gut I knew that I was, something was happening. You know, I, I knew that I was going to get jammed up. And I knew I couldn't go down there because if you got jammed up, that's, that's like a big jam. Like that's serious stuff. So uh, <laughs> my options were limited. So what I did, I enlisted. I enlisted in the Air Force. And that really wasn't a bright move because back then in the 70s, the military wasn't popular. I mean, you still had guys that went north. But uh, I enlisted and I got sent overseas. I spent some time overseas. And that's where my drinking really took off. I never messed around with other substances. I mean, I never even smoked a joint, you know. And I knew a lot of guys from the neighborhood had gone overseas and got whacked on certain things. But I had a fear of that stuff. But I was definitely a drinker at this point. I was over there for a couple months and several good friends of mine got killed. And I didn't know how to handle that. Because in my family, we didn't talk about nothing. If we talked, it was all surface stuff. And once you moved out of the house, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the family. Everything stayed within the walls of the house. And if you lived in the house, everything stayed inside you. We talked all surface stuff. And then that's not a shot on my folks. That's just the way it was. You know? So I didn't know how to handle this with my friends getting killed. But I know booze had numbed the pain. And that's what I did. I numbed the pain. I didn't distinguish myself, but I didn't do barely either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by. And again, this would be the pattern that I would set for myself for the next few years. You know, I just want to skate by, you know, and not draw any attention to myself. My tour was up. I came home. I enrolled in school. I went to St. Joe's College, a Jesuit University. I was there for a bit. And the same thing there. I, you know, I, I gave the bare minimum effort uh, to get by. I wasn't making dean's list, but I wasn't failing out either. Just, you know, scraping by. I wound up taking a couple civil service exams for the city, too, when I came back, and I continued with my schooling. Then one day, it was uh, May, it was towards the end of the semester, a couple guys in the neighborhood had called me up and said, Bobby, the Phillies are playing a businessman special tomorrow. Would you like to go to the game? And a businessman special, that's like a, 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 a midweek, like a Tuesday or Wednesday game, like 12.30 in the afternoon. I said, sure, I'll go. It's the end of the semester. Like, they're not going to miss me in school. I'm not participating there. So I went, me and four other guys from the neighborhood. It was an unusually warm day, very hot. And the Phillies had since moved. They're playing down in Vet Stadium in South Philadelphia. And I'm sitting up at the 700 level drinking that cheap, watered-down beer. And the sun's beating down on me, and I'm getting trashed. And I told the guys I was with, I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to run down in the field and meet one of the players. And they said, that's okay, Bob. And they kind of shrugged me off because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. I said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I did that. I didn't do nothing. I just drank and made stories up. So I had worked my way down to the old picnic area there, and I jumped over the fence. And the San Diego Padres were in town. And Dave Winfield was the right fielder for the Padres. And I'm running around the field, and I go out the right field, and I see Dave. I said, hi, Dave, how you doing? I shook his hand. He looked at me. He said, brother, I said, what are you doing out here? And from behind him, and he's a pretty big dude. From behind him, I saw the guards coming. I said, Dave, I got to go now. <laughs> So I start running towards the infield. I want to slide into second base. But as I was running towards the infield, there was more guards coming from the third base side. And if I knew if I slid into second, I'd get caught. So I turned around. I walked towards first base. And there was guards coming from the first base side. And I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably closer to the guard than Mike and I are right now. And I'm walking like to give myself up. At the last second, I deked the guy and I ran out in the outfield. Now I'm running around like a lunatic. It seems like 10 minutes, but it's probably closer to 3 or 4, you know. And up on the scoreboard, they put Mr. Excitement. You know, I'm running around. I finally stopped, you know. I'm drunk. I'm out of breath. I got nowhere to go. I'm about to get sick. You know, the fence is 12 feet high. There's guards all over the field. So I just, I'm waiting for them. I just stopped. I'm just waiting for them to catch me. They came up and they grabbed me and they took me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. <laughs> yeah, 
Todd McGraw was in the bullpen for the Phillies, he gave me the thumbs up, like, where to go? <laughs> now, you know what? I knew I was going to get it beaten from the guards. That's okay. They could have beat on me all day long. Because, you know what? This story, I, I'd be a legend back in the day, but I knew I was going to drink the next week on this, this story. Now, this is the type of story that I would make up. But the fact is, I got four guys from the neighborhood. They're my witnesses. I'm covered. <laughs> and that standing ovation, you know how Bill says he had arrived? Yeah. They could have beat on me. I don't care. They could have beat on me. It didn't matter. Just then, a Philadelphia police, uh, police lieutenant showed up out of nowhere. And he said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I'm just happy. Happy to be here. <laughs> he said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. So that was important because not only did he save me from getting a beaten, but he saved me from getting arrested. Because that was even more important because one of them civil service exams uh, kind of panned out. And uh, not that long afterwards, I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. <laughs> Back then, they was hiring anybody. <laughs> now, I tell you that story for on, on running on the field just for a couple of reasons. One, it's true. <laughs> Secondly, it's the only funniest story I got. Because I wasn't a funny dude. I was a lying, thieving, stinking, falling down, violent drunk. And if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. I used and abused every person I came in contact with. And thirdly, I was a blackout drinker. And I was a blackout drinker from my very first load. And I would remember showing up on the corners, and the guys on the corner would repeat the stories of Bombi, you should have seen yourself last night, and they would tell me what happened. And as the days and uh, weeks went on, I would retell those stories like I remembered them. But I did not. I was a blackout drinker, drinking beer from the very first start. But I drank a lot of beer. But still, I, I just couldn't remember things. So uh, I got hired by the police department. Frank Rizzo, he was our mayor at the time, and Frank himself was a former cop. And uh, we had 83,000 of us. I, excuse me, 8,300. 8,300 cops. And we was like a gang with badges. We did whatever the hell we wanted to do. Now, my deal was, I wasn't even old enough to drink. The drinking age in Pennsylvania has always been 21. The drinking age in Jersey at that time was 18. Where I lived in Philadelphia, I could be in Jersey quicker than I could be in other parts of Philadelphia. Jersey's right across the river. So, but once I got on the job, my badge opened the door so I can go wherever I want to do. I spent my first 10 years in uniform in North Philadelphia, and I would see the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of the tour, I would go out with guys in my squad, and I would, you know, you know, put them away, you know. I saw things on the job that bothered me, but I couldn't tell my co-workers that because I didn't want to be thought less than. I wanted to be one of the boys, to the point where I even engaged in behaviors I knew was wrong. I knew my gut was wrong, and I did it anyway, because the need for me to be accepted by these guys outweighed anything else. I always hung out with an older crowd. In high school, I was a freshman, I hung out with the uh, juniors and the seniors. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but at that age, it's a big difference, two or three years. You know, in the service, I hung out with older guys. They were all, uh, most of these guys were all non-veterans. You know, I came home from the police department. I was a young guy. Um, and in the, the 70s, we hired a, a lot of guys from NAM, so our numbers went to the roof. I always hung out with older guys, always. And so I want, the need for me to be accepted by these guys outweighed anything else. So, um, and my drinking got ugly quickly, you know. Everyone knew it but me. The signs were there. I remember one day I'm at work and the supervisor pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're smart and you're going to go places. That booze is going to mess you up. And that went on one ear and out the other. I was at a family function one time. My uncle was there. My uncle was a supervisor on the job. He pulled me off to the side. He said, Bobby, I'm hearing stories about you. You're going to get yourself in the jackpot. You better take it easy. In one ear and out the other. 
A couple years later, on, set, on two separate occasions, I ran into my uncle and that supervisor in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized at that point that they were trying to 12-step me. And I remember talking to my uncle. I said, Jimmy, how come you didn't tell me? He just smiled. He said, I told you, Bobby. He said, but you just weren't ready yet. Which just goes to show you that all the drinking and all the behaviors that went with it were necessary for me to hit my bottom. Now, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. My very first meeting was in 1979. And I don't tell people I went out because I really never came in. But I'll tell you what happened. I, I'm a, I uh, you know, show up at work. I job, we had an EAP unit, and part of the EAP unit had a, uh, they had an AA group there. And I showed up, and they, one of my coworkers was drunk, and uh, my supervisor said, take this guy up to the EAP unit, and he's detailed there for the day. I said, okay. I remember driving down the, uh, the road, and there was this little house that sat in a park, and there was this guy sitting on his porch, Eddie M. Eddie worked in the same building I did. He was a gruff old guy. And I pulled up. I said, Eddie, I'll drop this guy off. I'll be back at 4 o'clock to pick him up. He looked me dead in the eye. I said, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no, I don't. I was insulted that he even asked me. Because I know what alcoholics was. Alcoholics were you older guys, were these poor souls I was dealing in with day in, day out. Uh, were, were you married guys, you guys with the three heads, and all this other stuff. There, there was no way that I could be an alcoholic because I was pretty successful in the job. And I was a beer drinker, and there was no way that you could be an alcoholic drinking beer. Like the only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or Pay Day, but I was a beer drinker. <laughs> so I got sober a few years later, and Eddie was one of the first guys I saw, and he just smiled when I walked into the room, my first outside meeting. He said, "So, kid, you finally came around." And again, it was just goes to show you. All the drinking and all the behaviors that went with it were necessary for me to recognize I had a problem. I was uh, 24 years old, and I uh, shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in a line of work. And it was really a terrible situation that couldn't be avoided. And I used it as an excuse to crawl in a bottle, and that's what I did for the next three years. I wound up getting sober when I was 27. My drinking took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of those nevers is the use of other substances. I wound up getting promoted and transferred. I was in this particular situation, and I was drinking. My judgment was impaired. I thought I needed to do something. I did something. And my drug history is very short. It lasted 17 months. And, uh, but that's just where my drinking took me. And I think out of respect to the fifth tradition, that's all I need to talk about that stuff, you know. So uh, people stayed out of my way, you know. I felt sorry for myself. The help was there, but I rejected everybody, and I just continued on drinking. And I'm telling you, my, my life was falling apart, you know. And even whatever success I had in my career, that was getting me jammed up now. But, and and to, the, to the point where people got tired of covering for me. Because that incident that I was involved in, um, it, it was just terrible. They have since come up with a phrase, uh, suicide by police, the psychologists call it. But back then, that wasn't what it was. And so it, it was just it was just nuts. And, uh, you know, I... I just knew that I was in pr trouble, but I couldn't ask anybody to help me because I was such a nasty person. I remember I was sitting home from work one day, and there was an article in the paper. It said, alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, marital problems, thoughts of suicide. I was four out of five. I was single. <laughs> I'm still single. But you know, I took a look at that ad, and I said, maybe, you know, and I'm sure if I was married, I'd been batting a thousand, five out of five. But I looked at the ad and said, maybe, you know, they talk about the moment of clarity or sanity. Well, as soon as it came, it quickly left. But something made me cut that ad out, and I stuck it out, and I put it in my wallet, and I continued on drinking. 
It was Memorial Day weekend, 1988, and I'm sitting in this bar in Philadelphia. Guys from the squad were there partying. And one of my coworkers, for, for whatever reason, he needed to leave. He said, I need to go home for whatever reason. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll give you a ride home because I didn't think that I was as drunk as he was. And he thought that was a good idea. So we got in my car. I'm always a show-off. I was always an arrogant guy. And, uh, you know, I, I had, there was a lot of publicity, uh, you know, positive publicity for me for a while. And just in case you happen to miss it, I would happen to have a copy of the article for you if you want to read it. So, uh, so I was... Um, so I was going to show off my driving skills, and that's pretty easy to do, especially when you drive city vehicles. It don't matter if you wreck them, because so, uh, you always made up some sort of story. So I was driving up the street, and I said, there's a kid about two blocks away riding towards me on a bicycle. And I just thought I was going to play chicken with this kid. I was going to show off my driving skills in front of my coworker. And uh, we got closer, and unfortunately, at the last second, we turned in the same direction. I ran this kid over. As he lied bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car on my nightstick and I was going to beat this kid because I thought he was milking me for an insurance claim. So I took this kid off the hood of my car, threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car and threw that off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar, made a remark, I scored 10 points, and I continued on drinking. When I came to the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. So I didn't know what to do. So I got a case of beer, a bottle of liquor, some other substances, and I checked in a hotel to consume all this stuff to end my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the hotel to kick me out. And I couldn't shoot myself because at this point I was suspended from my job. I no longer had access to my weapon. So I walked over to the window, and I opened up the window. I was going to jump out. I opened up the window. I was on the fifth floor. I remember I was scared of heights. <laughs> Not. I made 23 jumps in the service. I never overcame my fear of heights. So I, uh, I went in the bathroom and I filled the bathtub up with water and I had a blow dryer. And I was going to pull the blow dryer in the tub to make it appear an accidental electrocution. But every time I would pull the, dub, the, the, the blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. I was about a foot and a half short on cord. <laughs> so, so I got one foot in the tub and I'm leaning trying to plug it in. And it's like that scene in that Woody Allen movie where he couldn't even kill himself, you know. And it's okay to laugh. I certainly, you know, laugh sometimes. But I don't ever want to forget the pain I was in that day. So the only other tool that I had left was my car. So I took one last spin through my neighborhood. I started up at the Falls Bridge and came down the East River Drive, which is a winding road along the Skulka River in Philadelphia. And I decided I was going to end my life in an automobile accident. And this is a weekday. It's like a Wednesday or Thursday, no sense of time, maybe a Friday, but whatever. It's a weekday. It's like 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's important because at any other time, my mission would have probably been accomplished because it's a heavily traveled road, but most people were already at work at this time, so traffic was light. And the speed limit is like about 25, and I'm doing about 50. And I'm flying down the drive, and like I said, it's a very winding road. And I'm cooked, and I'm hungover, and I'm crying. And something hit me emotionally that I realized that I did not want to go into oncoming traffic because I didn't want to hurt anybody else. And I'm telling you, I, if you came in contact with me, I hurt you. I hurt everyone, but unfortunately, those closest to me the most, I hurt them the most. But I was just in pain. I needed to numb the pain. I needed to end it, so I decided I would wrap myself around a tree. And by this point, I'm at the end of East River Drive, and that's Boathouse Row in Philadelphia. And I just finally pulled over, and I sat behind the wheel of my car, and I cried like a baby for about ten minutes. And it's no longer there, but at the end of the latest boathouse, it's one of those old glass-enclosed phone booths. And I reached into my glove box. 
And inside the glove box was my wallet, and inside the wallet was that ad that I clipped out of Daily News about six weeks before. And I walked over to that phone, and I dialed the phone number up, and the woman who answered the phone had to be a saint, God bless her. I spoke to this woman like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. And once I started telling her what was going on, I couldn't stop, you know. And God bless her, she listened patiently. And when I got done talking, she said, she said you know what, she said, why don't you drive over to Hanuman Hospital and somebody will be waiting to talk to you. I said, okay. So I drove over to Hanuman Hospital, about five, ten minutes away. Somebody was waiting for me. And they admitted me to the 10th floor of the psychiatric unit. And they kept me there for about three days to get me kind of stabilized because I was really off. And from there I got transferred to the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And from there I got transferred to the VA hospital out in Coatesville, Chester County, and spent a couple weeks in their flight deck before they put me into an alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over and made that phone call and asked for help, Alcoholics Anonymous was the furthest thing from my mind because I didn't think I had a problem with booze because I was a beer drinker. I thought my real problem was those other substances. If I left that stuff alone, I'd be okay. Maybe I got this mental illness and I inherited that from my mother. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're talking about. I got that from my job. Maybe I got that from experience in my, you know, in the service. Maybe it's the neighborhood I grew up in, you know. Maybe it's the fact I'm a mummer. It's all this other stuff, but it couldn't be alcohol. It couldn't be alcoholism because I was a beer drinker. So I continued, you know, uh, I, I got put into the alcohol and drug ward, and I'm there for about 10, 15 minutes, and I walk into the day room. And up on the day room wall, they had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions, the big window shades, right? And I go up through the steps. I zip through them. I got about six of them done. I saw the amends. I said, they're screwed. That don't apply. You know, forget about it. That don't apply to me. So what I, you know, I was just nuts. But what happened later that night, two men came up, and I would later find out that they were part of the treatment facility committee. I didn't know that then. They came up and carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. The moment that the speaker said something about his background that I couldn't identify with, didn't relate to, or just plain didn't like, I would immediately tune him out. I was too busy to listen to the messenger and not the message. Now I'm eyeing up my peers, right? And I'm looking around, and I find out, you know what, I'm not as bad as these guys. A lot of these guys was divorced. I was never divorced. Probably the fact that I'd never been married may have had something to do with that. <laughs> a lot of these guys had legal problems. I didn't have any legal problems. You know, nothing severe, probably because that badge in my back pocket. Kept, you know, and it was, I was looking for the differences and not the similarities, you know. And it was just nuts. But what bothered me the most at the end of that meeting, everyone got in a big circle and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what your people were about, then I didn't want nothing to do with you. And I broke away from the group, I wouldn't say the prayer. You know, I talk about my mom, my mom's mental illness. My mom was like a fundamentalist with the church, you know. And she had pictures and candles and programs on the radio and television. And she was in a charismatic movement. She thought she could speak in tongues and all that other stuff. And I was 15 years old. I came home from school one day. I'm in the house about 10, 15 minutes just wandering around. And then I came across my mother. She had slit her wrist. And I remember she looked up at me. She said, Bobby, help me. And I looked down at her and said, good for you. And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to go to the state store and get me a bottle of wine. And I stayed out and drank the wine. I came home later that, my, that night. My dad had told me what happened. I acted surprised. And I said, oh, yeah, how about that? So that, that happened when I was 15. I got sober 12 years later at the age of 27. I hated God for 12 years. Wouldn't get involved in the steps for a couple of years. So it would be a few more years before I would deal with this. So I broke away from the group. I wasn't going to say the prayer if this is what your people about that. I don't want nothing to do with you. At the end of my stay at the VA hospital, a woman came up to me. And I'm, I'm about to say this, and please, it's not to get a joke. 
This woman came up to me. She had to be a member of Al-Anon, man. She was beautiful. And you know what? She saw all through my stuff. It was all BS. You know, it was all like a defense mechanism to keep people at bay. And she came up to me and she said, you know what? She said, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I need to tell you that's the best piece of advice I got. The VA helped me with a lot of things that had gone on in my life, but I didn't get my recovery there. But they helped me tremendously. I would get my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to AA every single day, sometimes two or three times a day, depending on on my shift, if I was working or not. But I would get there late and I would leave early. I don't drink coffee, still don't drink coffee, never drank coffee in my life, so I don't make it. I don't smoke cigarettes, never smoked a cigarette in my life, so I don't empty any ashtrays. <laughs> this is the deal. If I walked into a big book meeting or a step meeting that was strictly by accident, I would have something more important to do, I would leave it to break. Tradition meetings, rules, I need to tell you, my line of work, we don't like to follow them, we sure like to hell to enforce them, they're for, every people, for all the other people, but they're not for us. So I just wasn't interested. See, I was interested in war stories. And the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't identify with, or didn't relate to, I'd immediately tune him out. Too busy listening to the messenger and not the message. But I made meetings. You know, I made meetings every single day. And I was crazy as a bed bug. I'm sitting in this bar, drinking seltzer, of course. I was like nine, nine, ten months sober. And guys came in, the guys from my neighborhood came in, and they, were, they just start breaking my stones. One thing led to another. I just had enough. I said, "Now with this. And I was drinking seltzer in a rock glass. And I stood up and I punched this guy right in the face with the rock glass. I cut him severely. He bled like a pig. And the cops who handled the job, he, they came in, they handled the job, and they, they knew him, and they cut me, they break, and they let me go. Now, the deal was, the reason I told you I was there, because they sell real good, real good roast beef. That's why I told you I was there. But the truth was, I was always an arrogant guy, like I said. And towards the end of my drinking, and when all the troubles I got into, I generated a lot of negative publicity. Now that I was cocky, I was back, and I didn't want people to believe the hype. Don't believe what you read. I'm back, things are good. That's the real reason I was there. And unfortunately, that incident got out of hand, and I had hurt somebody else, and I got out of that mess. But I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. And I have since found a place that sells real good roast beef without being in that type of environment, you know. (laughs) That's why they call them lessons, (laughs) you know. I was sober a year, and uh, I told my story in my group, and, man, I, it was an incredible experience. I got done speaking, thunderous applause, you know, the blind could see, the lame walked. It was an incredible experience. <laughs> People came up, and they patted me in the back and said, man, way to go, Bobby, you're doing so good. I remember when I first got sober, somebody said, man, he said, you're going to go a long way in AA. You know, you're really going to go far. I said, really? He said, yeah, he said, because you've got such a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> nuts so but they patted me in the back and said way to go you're doing so good man I was dying inside I lied during my entire story first of all I identified myself as an alcoholic because of my home group at that time that's all you could talk about you could talk about the other stuff and uh, in fact during the course of my story a bottle of beer appeared in my head but you guys didn't want to hear that you wanted to hear all the quotes so I gave you what you wanted to hear and you know what I was a pretty bright guy and I could repeat the stuff, but I can tell you, that as God is my judge, I was not living the program. And, uh, and I was just dying inside, you know. And they patted me in the back, and I, I wanted to reach out. But I couldn't, I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the, I never had the courage to do the right thing. I either hid behind the bottle or hid behind the badge. And I wanted help, but I couldn't ask these guys. And these guys were nice to me. And I, man, I love those old guys. Man, but I hated those old guys too, you know. And, uh. I, I would get mad when they never invite me out. 
But you know what? They used to invite me out all the time. And I would always say no. Because I had something better to do. Because I didn't want to hang out with them. And the truth was, serene people scared the hell out of me. And that's why I didn't want to hang out with those guys. And it was just nuts. You know? And uh, I get just crazier. 23 months sober, making regular attendance meetings in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I beat another man with a baseball bat. I forget what step I was working that day, but I was just nuts. I was crazy as a bed bug. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat. I did everything wrong in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't pick up a drink. And I would share these witty stories from the floor, and people pat me in the back and say, that's okay, Bobby, just don't drink. And I took that as being the message. I could do whatever the hell I want to do and just not drink. And I now know that's not the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and it was just nuts. You know, and uh, the war, after a year of being sober, all the men in the group were going on a retreat. And they asked me, and, but they tricked me, because you know you can trick new guys. And they came up to me. It was one of those trick questions. I, it was like, Bobby, you working this weekend? And before I had a chance to formulate a story, you know, I, I, I knew the response should have been, Why? You know, because you can't say yes so quickly. But I said, well, I said, you know, I said, no, I'm not. That's what came out. I couldn't believe I said that. They said, good, we're going to retreat this weekend. We're going to take you with us. Now, I hated these guys, but, man, I want to hang out with these guys. But it's just nuts. So I went on a retreat with these guys. See, they knew that I wasn't saying the prayer. I wasn't say, holding hands. So they knew something was up between God and me. So they put me in the back seat, and there was a guy sitting on each side of me. It's like role reversal. Like at work, I went like from the front seat to the back seat. You know, <laughs> I'm used to driving guys like that. So they, uh, so they take me up to this retreat. And the closer we get to the retreat, the bigger the knot is in my stomach. Because I can't tell these guys about my mom. But the need for me to be accepted by these guys outweighed that. It's just nuts. I get to the retreat. I'm there about 15, 20 minutes before I find, uh, run into to the retreat master. As soon as he saw me, he just smiled. He's my disciplinarian from high school. But not only that, but he was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he just smiled. He said, oh, it's good to see you. I knew that was your problem. We started talking. Wanted to know how long I was sober. Telling him what the deal was. That's great. He wanted to know who my sponsor was because this guy made meetings. I said, I don't have a sponsor. Because I'm a pretty bright guy. But I didn't tell because he knew that I was a bright guy. I said, I don't have one. He said, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. I said, okay. So he asked my roommate to be my sponsor, just in case, God forbid, you ever question me again. Hey, Bobby, you got a sponsor? I said, yeah, there he goes right there. That's him. So I got this guy, my roommate, to be my sponsor. And the only time I talked to him is when I accidentally bumped to him in the meetings. I would see him in a meeting. He would wave to me. He said, Bobby, I still get that same phone number. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. I never called him. You know what I used to do? I used to tell these other guys, you won't believe this guy. He got me doing this. He got me doing that, doing that. He didn't do none of it. I made it all up. He put the hand of help, the hand of AA, and I slapped it away. And then I talked about him. You know, I was just nuts. I was crazy in early recovery, as you, as you can imagine. <laughs> My first couple of years, I used to go to a lot of go-go bars, right? But I drank soda. I drank soda or water. And I would get my picture taken, right, with, like, the entertainers. I would get my picture taken, I would come to meetings and pass the pictures around to the old timers because I figured they would like that. <laughs> they look at the picture and they look at me and they just shook their head and said, please kid, please keep coming back. <laughs> and I thought they was being facetious, I said, alright, I'll keep coming back. Man, I was nuts. I swear to God, I had no idea who John Barleycorn was. I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, you know what, he's really tough SOB, I wouldn't want to tangle with him. 
When I found out who John Porterquin was, I felt so stupid. <laughs> but here I was, I was so damn bright, it damn near killed me. I couldn't, oh, I was nuts. No one asked me to be their sponsor. No one wanted what the hell I had. I didn't carry the message, I carried the disease. My home group, we had a cork board, right? Anniversaries of the month, first name, last initial, date of month, how many years you're celebrating? True story, I, you know, not proud of it, but it's my experience. If you went out, I took pleasure in that. Like Joey A got three years and Bobby C got two years and Joey went out. It's a good for him. I move up. I was just nuts. I swear to God. <laughs> That's crazy. I just didn't drink. I just didn't drink. Made meetings. I was dying from untreated alcoholism. I did everything wrong in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat. I just didn't drink. I would share these witty stories from the floor and the guys next to me would get up and leave. I'd go to the men's room, come back, the seat next to me would be empty. They'd be sitting on the other side of the room. Then I'd be trying to give them the evening. Man, you know, the second anniversary came. I didn't celebrate it. A month after my second anniversary, I went to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but 25 months before, I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone cold sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Want to eat my gun. Safe to assume my life is unmanageable. There's a guy from my neighborhood. I've been seeing him for a couple years. And I hated everybody. But you know what I hated the most? I hated the guys coming from behind me. See, you guys with time, I didn't believe you guys. I, I couldn't understand that. I spent almost like five and a half months in the VA hospital. I got out and I made my first outside meeting. And uh, the, I remember clearly, it was a married couple, uh, 10 years. And the woman had one more date than her husband. And she constantly reminded him of that during her share. But whatever, they had 10 years. I didn't believe that. I thought like you could go over in Jersey and drink and keep your Pennsylvania time. I thought maybe... <laughs> I thought like you had your different parties. You know, I couldn't believe, I didn't understand that. But there were a couple guys from my neighborhood that had like a year, year and a half, two years. I knew these guys were nuts. And I knew that they were sober. Like I could see that because I saw them during my, you know, interaction in the neighborhood. And I was impressed by these guys. These guys I could relate to. I could not relate to the guys at the time. So I'm a little sober a little over two years. And I see one of the guys in the neighborhood. His nickname was Troubles. Hard-earned nickname. But no one called him Troubles to his face because he's a pretty rough dude. So I was at a meeting one night. And like I said, I've been watching this guy in the neighborhood where he had, he had the glow. See, I was a bright guy. You could fake the talk, but you couldn't fake the glow. And like I said, I hated everybody. But I hated these new guys because they were getting better before me because I saw these guys. I mean, these guys are coming, they couldn't even speak complete sentences. You know, they were all jammed up legally and everything else going on. And I saw these guys a year, year and a half, two years sober, and they were now men of dignity and honor. So I knew the program worked. I just didn't take the action. So I saw this guy from my neighborhood, and I said, Bobby, I said, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? He looked at me, he said, Bobby, I've been watching these past couple years, and I'm sticking my chest out, I said, yeah, he likes me. He says, I need to tell you. He said, you're full of shit. That's not the answer I'm looking for. He said, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. Hey, you're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting a week. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment, and you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm talking to myself. Like, who's he talking to here? I'm sober 25 months. I'm selling the grapevines. You know what's going on here? Well, but what I did do, I looked him dead in the eyes and said, that's okay, I'm willing to do that. And that's the night that I took the first three steps. Because like I said, I went to eat my gun, my life was certainly unmanageable, you know. And if that was the problem, the solution had to be a power greater than myself. 
And I knew that there was definitely higher power, regardless of my resentment towards God, and I still had it. Because of these new guys coming in behind me, I saw their lives get better. I knew something was at work, regardless of my resentment. We went back to his house. He pointed those things out to me. We got on our knees together, and we said the third step prayer. And when I got done with the prayer, he said, Bobby, there's a difference between making a decision and making a commitment. And he said, the way we do this third step is by grabbing paper and pen and doing an inventory. Now, I didn't want to do one of these. I'm going to meetings. People said, whoa, easy does it. <laughs> Don't want to get well too soon. Keep it simple. Just don't drink, you know. And I know those slogans definitely have a place, that, you know. But I was taken as, whoa. And I didn't want to do one of these because I'm going to meetings. And, I, and unfortunately, and this is not a shot at my group, uh, the first group I went to, but we really weren't big on the, you know, sponsorship and structure and, and the program. The step, I mean, and they weren't bad people because they were never taught the way. So you can't transmit nothing that you don't have, you know. And this was the deal in the group. No one was, was really bad anything. We were more fellowship than anything else. Good people, but they were just clueless. And so when somebody wanted to take the action, they were always discouraged. And now they were about to discourage me. But the fact was, here I was, 25 months sober, making regular tens of meetings. I went to eat my gun. It couldn't get any worse. I can't imagine it getting any worse, except actually squeezing that trigger. So I start doing my inventory, and you know what? There were no surprises. Everything I wrote down, I did. No big deal. The big deal was the next step. They were talking to my sponsors. Whoa. So I call them up because I'm a pretty bright guy. I call them up. I said, Bobby, I want to go to retreat this weekend and do this fifth step with a priest. He said, Bobby, that's great. When you get done, step by my house. You'll do it with me. <laughs> and you guys know what they're... You know how... Oh, man, it's unbelievable. And sometimes they got that telepathic thing going on. Because even though I didn't say nothing, he must have picked it up over the phone. Because I'm thinking, like, what, you hear me? And he comes right back, yeah, I heard you, did you hear me? <laughs> and before I could say anything, he said, Bobby, the reason I want you to come over, he says, this is a journey, I'm supposed to help you with it. If I'm going to help you change your character defects, I think I need to know what they were. Or, I said, okay. The deal was, I didn't want to go to the priest. Uh, I, I went there for one reason and one reason only. It wasn't to be spiritually enlightened. Even though I got this resentment towards church and God on the list, it's still there. The resentment's there. There were a lot of things I was embarrassed about. And I was afraid if I wanted my sponsor, he would ridicule me, he would pass judgment on me, or even worse, he would tell other people. Especially the thing with my mom, like I couldn't tell anybody that. But I knew, if I knew I wanted a priest, it would be between me, him, and the lamppost. No one else would know. I never did that fist step with that priest. I did that with my sponsor. And those fears I had with my, uh, about my sponsor were unfounded fears. Because he didn't do any of those things. He didn't pass judgment on me. He didn't ridicule me. And to the best of my knowledge, he never told anybody else. In fact, what he did, he shared some of his stuff with, with me, which took away the terminal uniqueness that I thought I was the only guy to do certain things and have certain thoughts. In fact, uh, Bobby uh, did time. He had, he, he had taken someone's life in the early 70s, so, uh, and he, he paid uh, the consequences for that action. So uh, he, he was able to help me tremendously, you know, and uh, I'll be forever indebted. But the, the best thing apart, when he shared with me, that, man, that helped tremendously. I guess he didn't trust me. He had a quiet room set up in his house. I bought a house a couple years ago, and I have one in my house also. I guess he didn't trust me to go out, and I figured I'd get distracted. And I sat quietly for that one hour. You know, and I go to a lot of step meetings, especially, you know, and, and when we get to the fifth step, you hear people talk about, but you don't hear them talk about this part, like they're sitting quietly. 
and my experience may be different from yours, but I can only talk about mine, right? When I get done sitting quietly for the hour, the screaming inside stopped. Now that may not sound like a lot. Now at this point, I'm probably sober about 30, 31 months. And my head was always racing. You know what? I finally experienced some sort of peace. The screaming inside stopped, man, and that was an incredible reward. I didn't burn my fourth step because my sponsor told me I would need these for the rest of the steps. Six and seven, character defects. You know, when I first got sober, you guys had a lingo all to yourself. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And character defects, I didn't know nothing about this. I know when I drank, I was a character. <laughs> I found out when I did my inventory, I had no character whatsoever. You couldn't depend on me. You know, you couldn't trust me. You couldn't rely on me. You know, I wasn't a friend. I wasn't a brother, you know, a boyfriend. I was none of that stuff. I was self-centered to the extreme. I cared about me. If you got on my way, shame on you, you know. The sixth step, I was willing, you know. And if I didn't have a willingness, I could pray on the willingness. And the seventh step was a prayer. My sponsor told me, so Bobby, you need to put legs on those prayers. I could pray all day long. God, help me be patient. Help me be patient. During the course of my day, if I come across you and you kind of push my buttons and I lash out in sarcasm, and sarcasm is nothing but anger dressed up. It's also referred to as the language of the Irish. But, I mean, should I lash out and use sarcasm, then that prayer for patience goes out the window. I can pray all day long, God, help me be honest, help me be honest. And should I see someone drop their wallet and I do one of these things with my foot and drag it, that prayer for honesty goes out the window. You need to put legs on those prayers, I was told. And God will do for me what I can't do for myself. But you know what? This is a program of action. You can't always turn it over and blame it at God's feet, you know. The A step, because I didn't burn my fourth step, half my A step was done. And I had to throw more names on it. And I was one of these guys, whoa, I didn't harm anybody but myself. Right there was the tip-off. I never did my inventory because I harmed everybody, you know. And I had to throw more names on there. And I had to become willing. Again, because this willing deal, I already had two, two steps of experience in this willingness. If I didn't have a willingness, I could pray for it, you know. And then I stepped direct amends. No phone calls, no letters from me because I didn't beat you with a bat over the phone or through the mail. And when I want to do those measures, uh, you know, the truth was I can make up excuses. You live out of neighborhood or all this other stuff. But the truth is I'm probably afraid. I'm afraid to face you. And my sponsor said, direct amends, Bobby. And I'd like to share two experiences on the amends. He told me making amends is much more than saying I'm sorry. For me, there, there were two words that don't mean squat. It's about righting the wrong. About 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I'm at this meeting. And uh, this guy walks down the steps. I have not seen this guy since 1977. He's not on my A-step list, not through any fear or anything. I just plain forgot, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But as soon as I saw this guy, I recognized him. And I'll tell you what I used to do. I remember I was in a bar one day. We had, you know, we had words, and he would never respond. So from that point on, whenever I went to impress anybody how tough I was, I would, public, I would pick on this guy, and he was much bigger than me anyway. And I would publicly humiliate this guy, the verbal abuse. One day I slapped him, he didn't do nothing, and then one day I spit on him. I mean, what worse thing can you do? You're talking about the utter degradation of spitting on somebody. So, um, and like I said, I'm not a tough guy. I never was. I was just a creep. So I saw this guy, and I remembered him. And he didn't, he didn't recognize me. I guess, you know, we sober up, we clean up. So I get introduced, I stand up, and I speak. And I look this guy dead in the eyes. And my name is Bobby Coyle, and I'm an alcoholic. Now I need to tell you why I use my full name. You know, um, these, 11, these traditions, I know this top secret stuff traditions, and we, we won't even get in concepts because we, you definitely need a security clearance for that. But traditions... <laughs> Traditions, you know, well, and, you know, and, and a lot of misinformation, and probably they're all misunderstood, but no more so than this 11th tradition. 
all of a sudden we get sober, right? It's like, especially back home, it's like we become, like we join the mafia. And we get these nicknames. And there's Frank the, uh, you know, uh, Frank the Fox and Red Sweater Jerry and Bucktooth Mary and Pepsi George and the list goes on. Everybody in my neighborhood knows I'm a drunk. It was a little telltale sign, you know. They came outside, they catch me, I'd be urinating on their car. <laughs> my girlfriend threw the clothes out the window. I'm slumped behind the wheel of my car. My, you know, I'm coked. I'm, I'm a raven lunatic. Everyone in my neighborhood knows I'm drunk. All of a sudden, I get sober. God forbid my reputation be tarnished if people know I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you know, Dr. Bob said when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. He went on to say that anonymity is spiritually inspired and secrecy is fear-inspired. The 11th tradition says personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. That means you will never see my full face identify my full name, which is Robert Ignatius Benedict Coyle III, on the television, on the radio, in the newspaper, stating that I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the 11th tradition. Dr. Bob went on to say that when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that's a violation of the 11th tradition. I mean, God forbid, 3 o'clock in the morning, you feel like drinking, you're going to call information up? Yeah, I'd like to have Frank the Fox's phone number. <laughs> you want to go visit one of these old-timers? You want to go to the hospital? Yeah, we're on Bucktooth Mary again. I mean, <laughs> out of luck. You know? It's not a secret society. However, I have no right whatsoever to break anybody else's anonymity. You choose not to use your full name, and I respect that. That's okay. But I was heavily involved in the area back home, and we use our full names, and that's what we do, because you're not going to find Bobby C. in the phone book, you know? Okay. All right, off that soapbox. Back, back to this meeting. So I looked this guy down in the eye, said, my name is Bobby Coyle, I'm an alcoholic. Then he recognized me, and he started nodding. So when I got done speaking, I told the group what I used to do, because I figured if I publicly humiliated him, the least I could do is to make amends to him publicly. And again, it's much more than saying I'm sorry because there are two words that don't mean squat. And if I owe you financial amends, I can always go on a payment plan with you. Here's a few dollars. But what about that emotional damage, that psychological damage we cause people? How do I make amends for that? I told him, I apologized to him, and I said, Bobby, I hope as long as I stay sober, I don't treat you or any other human being like, like that again. You know what? And he came up and he hugged me and he forgave me. So after the meeting, we're talking. And I say, uh, you know, we start talking. I said, well, you know, what's been going on? I ain't seen you in years. He said, I've been sober three years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, really? Now the arrogance creeps back in because everyone knows me back home. Not everyone likes me. Everyone knows me. Though. I'm involved in the service. Everyone knows what the deal is. And I'm surprised that he's never heard of me. So now I need to tell you this meeting that we're at. I live in South Philadelphia. He lives in Roxborough, which is like the northwest section of Philadelphia. This meeting is in North Philadelphia. It's a meeting that it's a neighborhood that he and I would probably not frequent. I asked him, I said, well, what brings you here tonight? He said, Bobby, I was flipping through the meeting directory, and I just wanted to attend a different meeting tonight, and for some reason this meeting jumped out at me. Now I need to tell you, we have 1,600 meetings a week. Our meeting directory is about 70 pages thick. He opened up the page, and he said, for some reason this meeting jumped out at me. I am a firm believer that, guy, that God put that guy in my path that night, and I had two options. I could do what I always did, you know, the benefit of having eight kids so close in the age group, people would come up and confront me, yeah, 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 you son of a, you know. I said, whoa, 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 not me. You're talking about my brother Brian, my brother Sean. We just look alike, you know. That's the deal when you have a sibling so close in age. Or I could do what I did that night. 
I can make amends to him. Because the ninth step says, wherever possible. Not whenever, because wherever denotes place, whenever is time, and it's never the right time for us because we're too busy as he does in it. <laughs> you know? So, on the flip side of that, another ninth step experience, uh, amends. I'm at a business meeting. My home group at that time was the Stepping Stones group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I made a motion. It was definitely for the betterment of AA. I made it. I knew it. Discussion takes place. Then the motion goes down. It doesn't even get seconded. I can't believe that. And the one of the leading opposition views was by my boy Freddie. Now I need to tell you, I grew up in a neighborhood. There were certain rules. They may be warped, but there's still rules and you need to follow them. One of those, like first of all, like you can never date anybody else's ex, you know. You mean you were boys and like you dated like Mary years ago. I could never date her again. She's like off limits. It's just, it's one of them things. Another thing is right, wrong, or indifferent, you always backed your boy. It was just, it don't matter how wrong he is, you still got to heave my boy. I got to back him up. That's the way it is. Well, Freddie didn't do this. I couldn't believe it. I was disgusted. In fact, I would walk into the meeting, and I would see him afterwards. There'd be four men there. I'd say hi to three of them and completely ignore Freddie. I'm at work one day. One of my coworkers came up to me. and said, Bobby, Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to take care of some sort of business. I peeked outside. I saw him sitting behind the, the wheel of his car. I said, tell him to take his fat ass down to City Hall. He needs to do that there. He can't do that here. My coworker happened to be in the program. That's how I knew him. So that same coworker, a few weeks later, called me up. He said, Bobby, he said, Freddie Wheels died last night. And he said, the reason I'm calling you is because he always spoke so highly of you. Now, here he was, a very good friend of mine. And as good as God is my judge, I can't tell you what that motion was about. That's how petty it was. He was put in my path numerous, numerous times. And I chose not to make amends. And the moment that the, my co-worker told me, he said, Bobby, he spoke so highly of you. I felt about yay big. You know, and I've been praying for Freddie ever since. So that's two experiences on the ninth step. Once where I had the opportunity, I took advantage of it, and I reaped the rewards. Second, I had the opportunity and chose not to take advantage of it, and I paid the price. You know? And th see, the promises kick in. I mean, there's promises throughout the big book, but a lot of them happen at the end of the ninth step, because it's just like the real world. It's a program of action. If you've got a job, you don't become employee of the year or get that yearly bonus unless you show up and do the work. It's a lot more than just showing up. You've got to do the work. You've got to go above and beyond whatever the goals were set for the team. Same thing if you go to school. It's much more than showing up. If you want to make the dean's list, you need to go above and beyond what they have set. You know, you play sports, the same thing. You don't get selected for the all-star team unless you go above and beyond. It's a lot more than showing up. It's the same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. You get the rewards by doing the work. There's a, uh, and I love the big book, the directions there, but there's a little phrase in that 12 and 12 that I like. It's in the third step. It says, admitting that you're an alcoholic and making regular attendance in meetings is a far cry from permanent consent and sobriety. Showing up is important, but you know what's a hell of a lot more than that. You know, because how many of you have showed up and got drunk again? You know, people say meeting makers make it. My experience, the only thing they make is meetings. I've known people who made meetings and drank again. I made meetings on a regular basis, sometimes two or three uh, a day, 25 months sober, I was going to eat my gun. It's a lot more than showing up. It's about taking the action. The 10 step for me for, is 4 through 9 on a regular basis. Now, if I'm going to stand up and tell you I do a 10 step every day, that would not be true. But I'm pretty consistent. If I also tell you if I don't do a 10 step, no one knows but me, that's not true either. See, because when I'm not practicing these principles, I become a nitwit. And should I be in nitwit mode and you cross my path that day, you're also affected. <laughs> you know?
Because I could be arrogant, I could be rude, I could be whatever, and should you cross my path, you know, you're going to suffer my consequences of being a nitwit. And I'm telling you, you know, I, I kick myself in the butt too, sometimes I laugh. You can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety, and I've been on some good loads. But sooner or later, they, you know, you sober up. To maintain that load, you've got to continue doing what you've got to do. Well, it's the same thing about sobriety. I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. And I'm telling you, every time I try, like, to kick back, take it easy, I pay the price. To the point where I even laugh. I'm like, well, when the hell am I ever going to get it, you know? I get a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual maintenance, you know? And, and chances are, if I do today what I did yesterday, chances are I'm not going to pick up a drink. And if I'm lucky enough to get up tomorrow, I need to do the whole thing all over again. But on the flip side of this, especially if you're new, I don't want you to think that recovery is a lottery and to, the wheel spins and today's your day to drink because that's nonsense too. Because there's a guarantee in the book that prevents us from picking up a drink again if we take further action. I hear people said I did the steps and pick up a drink. I mean, that's a lie because nowhere in the steps does it say go out and buy a 40. You know, go out and get a fifth, you know. You may have done them at one time. And, you know, I've done the steps at one time and I, cook, I, I kicked back, I took it easy, and I got crazy again. But you know what, I need to stay, um, I'll be a drunk to the day I die, you know. But my daily, I got a daily reprieve, my act of alcoholism is arrested, you know. But it's a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual maintenance. The 11-step prayer meditation improved my conscious contact. I got a conscious contact with a higher power. Now I no longer practice the religion I was raised in as a kid. But you know what, I no longer blame the church because the church wasn't the problem. And I don't blame the Air Force. I don't blame the police department. I don't blame the, the neighborhood I grew up in. I don't blame the mummers. I don't blame my mother. My mother was mentally ill. There was none of that stuff. See, when I went through the steps, I found out that I was the problem, Bobby Quill. And you know what? I was a liar, thief, to cheat long before I picked up a drink. All during my uh, drinking, all that stuff was just magnified. When I put the drink down, I was still a liar, thief, and a cheat. And those feelings of inadequacies and low self-esteem, all that stuff was still there. I needed to do some work, you know. I was the problem. There's a lot of things about my past that I'm not proud of. But you know what, the, the steps, and I would change them in a heartbeat if I could, but I can't. But you know what, the steps enabled me to change my attitude about the past. And I can now use that to help other people. The 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I did the steps, and I, I had that spiritual awakening. Now, I haven't seen any burning bushes, and I haven't seen, you know, thunder, uh, you know, lightning strike or heard any voices. In fact, it's been a number of years since I heard any voices at all, and I'm forever really, truly grateful for that. <laughs> but I've had that change of attitude. You know, you know, we tried to carry this message. That's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been to thousands of meetings since I've been sober, and I hear some things, and I scratch my head to look up the slogans and make sure I'm in an AA meeting. That's the message. You know what? You hear people say, whoa, don't talk about God to the newcomer because you'll scare them. Well, just like Don said earlier today, if you're lucky, alcohol will chase your ass right back here because you've got nowhere else to go. And I need to talk about the spiritual aspect. The book says, speak freely of the spiritual aspect of the program. Because I can't claim credit because I'm a liar, thief, and a cheat. You know? I destroy. I take. The only thing I give is heartache and misery. You know? So it's important for me to talk about the spiritual aspect of the program. And the most important part of the step, though, is to practice these principles in all of our affairs. I'm only in an AA meeting an hour and a half a day. What about the other 22 and a half hours? What about uh, the time at work? You know, should I come across you? Am I practicing these principles? What about the time with my family, my friends, in my neighborhood? You know, am I practicing these principles? For me, it's real easy to stay sober in an AA meeting. And, and I, uh, it was someone else talking today. It may have been Karen. I forget who it was. But about doing the right thing outside the meetings. That's where it's tough for me. It's tough to do that. 
You know, I got involved in the service. I learned about the traditions, and I love the traditions. You know, the traditions are to the group, but the steps are to the individual. The steps are how it works, and the traditions are why it works. You know, the preamble says our primary purpose, and the preamble for, is really nothing more but a condensed version of all the traditions if you actually listen to it. But in the preamble it says our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. If I'm only staying sober and not helping other alcoholics, that's half measures, and half measures about us nothing. And that 12th step takes a lot of different forms and fashions. In fact, we have a whole chapter dedicated how to 12-step people, you know. But there's a lot of different things. This conference, these guys, the committee put on this conference, that's 12-step work. I know there's new guys here. I know there's scholarship guys here. I also know there's guys up here, you know, listening to steps, you know, one alcoholic. I mean, I was talking to a new guy myself, a couple new guys today. That's 12-step work, you know. Some of us have more time when we get involved in the inner group, the central office, the area. I get uncomfortable when people say oh, that's about politics. My experience, that has not been my experience. I was involved in the area, and I need to tell you, these are some of the most selfless people I've ever met. You know, there were a lot of times, don't get me wrong, I would like to be home watching the Eagles, but there was a committee meeting, and I had to go to the committee meeting. You know, uh, we have corrections. I remember one time my sponsor, he was taking me to Holmesburg as a prison in Philadelphia since we closed. He called me up a few weeks before. I said, Bobby, we get, you know, prison commitment. I said, I ain't going up there. He said, yeah, you are. I said, I'm not. I said, I can't go up there. I think I would have to use profanity. I thought I would need to embellish my story because I didn't think I had anything to share with these guys. He said, Bobby, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. He said, you have a message of hope, and that's what we carry. This is about two or three weeks before. So about, a, about three or four days. It's a Monday night, right? So like Friday, I re remembered the Cowboys and Eagles Monday night football. So I, I call my sponsor up. Obviously, I'm going to make up a story. And they see, they see right through that. He said, Bobby, you gave me your word. He said, that's a commitment. He said, besides, he said, if you pick up a drink, I don't think Ron Jaworski is going to come over and 12-step your ass. <laughs> so I went on this commitment. We went out to dinner. I picked them up after work. We had went to dinner. We went up there. And there's a whole process to get buzzed in. So we wound up spending about four hours together. We go to the meeting. No one shows up. They're all on the block watching the game. Now I got a resentment, and I'm leaving. I make some sort of remark to the, uh, the CEO on the gate. I said, I guess you transferred all your alcoholics up to Greaterford. He just looked at me, didn't know what I was talking about. My sponsor picked up on it right away in the car on the ride home. He said, you still don't get it. You're selfish SOB. He said, we were here just in case. We are responsible for the effort, not the outcome. We were here just in case they showed up. And besides, we had dinner. We hung out for four or five hours. We didn't drink. If they get it, that's just a bonus. You know, but then I got involved in the area of service and I learned about the traditions and I love the traditions, you know, and uh, some great stuff. The traditions allow us to be wrong and make mistakes and making mistakes don't make us drunk. Not learning from our mistakes or justifying those mistakes or, or making mistakes just out of arrogance. That's the stuff that makes us drunk, you know, and uh, I just love that stuff. And then I start going to other places. I'm just in Philadelphia alone. Like I said, we got 1,600 meetings a week. And I would go to other parts of the, uh, of the city. Then when I got involved in the area, I would go because our official name was Southeastern Pennsylvania, so we had four other counties. And I would go to other counties. And I remember the first time I went to a meeting out of my neighborhood, I said, you know what, they're doing it wrong. They weren't doing it wrong, they were just doing it differently. And I now like to, ha you know, I, I've traveled IH throughout the country and out of the country, and I like the way it happens. Like here tonight, when you guys open up with that serenity prayer, boy, that throws me for a loop. Because that's the way we close our meetings back home. We close for the, uh, with the serenity prayer. But the deal is, the delivery may be different, but the message is the same. 
And I think that's pretty neat. I was in Mexico about 12 years ago, Spanish-speaking meeting. I was the only English-speaking person in the room. I thought I could speak Spanish because I worked the barrio all those years. Now, my Spanish, I was talking to someone earlier today, consisted of like, dame pistola. Give me your gun. That's my Spanish. So I'm speaking Spanish in this meeting. Those poor people look at me and they're just figuring what the hell I was saying. I guess I got tried to, tired of insulting them, so I switched over to English. And they still didn't know what the hell I was saying. And you know what? When I got done speaking, they came up and they hugged me. And I could tell who the old-timer was by the serenity in their face. And I could tell who the new guy was by the pain in their face. Language of the heart. They may not have understood, but you know what? They understood. And an incredible experience like that. And, and, and to come to places, I mean, like a beautiful place like Montana. I've never been in the state of Montana before. And uh, I mean, it's incredible as a result of being sober. Like a poor kid from me from South Philadelphia. This is incredible. You know, I love AA. You know, I, I'm not the poster boy of Alcoholics Anonymous. I invite you, come live with me for a week. See what type of guy that I am. But you know what? I'm not whacking guys with bats. I'm not dating other guys, girlfriends. You know, I'm not using other people's credit cards. And I'm not doing any of that other stuff. You know, I, I make mistakes. I try to do the right thing. And I really believe, again, without being arrogant, I really believe I'm a man of dignity and honor today. And I got that because of the old timers showed me how to grow up. I mean, I was 27. I got sober. I was a kid. I didn't know. I was immature. And I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I learned how to treat people. And, and I love AA. You know, I got a friend back home. She said, AA's the corner she always wanted to hang on. She didn't know where it was at. She, we hang on corners back. I don't know what you hang up here. You hang in the mountains, I guess. But <laughs> I'll meet you by the fourth tree, okay? <laughs> Go down to the moose and hang a left. I don't know. <laughs> So, but you know what, uh, man, I, I love going to other places. And I literally have friends throughout the country. I mean, Brad and the guys from Alaska I met last year in Cornhusker. You know, it's, a, it's neat stuff. Where else does this happen? I mean, in Philadelphia, I remember sitting in the bar, and these were the stories. This was bullshit. Bob, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I didn't do nothing. For me, it was the chore to get to the Jersey Shore an hour and a half away. And that was tough. And you know what, when I went down there, I drank. I never made the beach. I'd come home, I'd be white as a ghost. Some people said, I thought you was away for a week. I was, I was in a bar drinking. <laughs> Nuts. I got, uh, back in 93, I got diagnosed, and I'm going to wrap this up real soon. In 1993, I got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a real fluke way I found out. You know, I was training to run the Boston Marathon. And so I, I, I got diagnosed with lung cancer. I never smoked in my life. A little reefer for a short period of time, but I never smoked a cigarette. So I wanted to get a second opinion. It got confirmed. And I remember driving home. I, I don't want you to think I handled this well because I didn't. You know, and I'm so, you know, I'm sober for a while. I'm doing the right thing. Like, how dare this happen to me? And my sponsor at the time, who, who ironically uh, passed uh, shortly afterwards of lung cancer himself, he said, and he, he wasn't diagnosed yet, he said, Bobby, what are you going to do about it? You know? So, uh, like, the second opinion came, I started treatment. And uh, I got really sick there. And I had a position with the area, and I needed to give it up uh, because I didn't have the strength. I, I just couldn't do the job. And the only reason I want to hold the job because out of ego, I want to be the youngest, you know, whatever. And uh, it was strictly out of ego, so I had to give it up. And uh, I went in remission, I got sick again, and they wound up removing the lower left lobe of my lung. And I was in the hospital for a while, and I, you know, and then I came home, and I was laid up, and I always made meetings, always. I mean, I'm still good five, six meetings a week. Uh, the reason being, because that's where I find the newcomer. The newcomer doesn't know that I live at 707 Sears Street. That's why I go to meetings. In fact, when I go to meetings and I don't see any of my sponsors, if I hadn't heard from them for a while and they want to come home and talk to me, I said, no, you got my phone number. Let's go over and talk to that guy. We didn't see him before. Let's talk to him.
So I've always made meetings. But I couldn't even make meetings anymore. I was laid up in my house. And you know what? Even though I may have had an excuse to go out and get loaded, I didn't have a reason to go get loaded. I had a pretty good life. And you know what? People start coming to my house and carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm talking people I knew from the assembly. And people I really didn't even know that well that I may have met once or twice come to my house to carry the message. Like I said, you're looking at a liar, a thief, and a cheat. I took from everyone. The only thing I gave was heartache and misery. And people came to my house and, they, you know, they're bringing me food and doing meetings and that. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that my doctors did a pretty good uh, job. But, you know, what? it was definitely prayers in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went remission. I was doing good for a while. And just recently, back in October, I wound up getting, I was like one month shy of five years. I'd been like total cancer free. In October, I got diagnosed again. And then uh, I go through treatment again and uh, I get kind of sick again. This is like a new hairdo, by the way. You go on chemo, you lose a few pounds, you know, but I get a new hairdo. I go in the dark, but that's all right. <laughs> but uh, but I just finished up treatment. And in fact, last week was uh, was my, I get checked every three months, and last, month, last week was my six-month checkup. And Tuesday, I just got the news that, you know, I'm good for at least another three months. I was going to buy the warranty plan, see if I could extend this. <laughs> But the deal is, you know what? I got a good life today in Alcoholics Anonymous, beyond my wildest dreams, you know? I make mistakes. I try to do the right thing. You know, I'm just a regular guy just trying to get by. But you know what? I've met some wonderful, beautiful people, and I am truly grateful. And when people used to identify themselves as grateful alcoholics, man, they're clueless. What the hell are they talking about? Now I know what they're talking about. I'm grateful that a way of life has been shown to me that I was able to turn my life around. And I really thank you, and I thank the committee for the privilege of participating in an AA meeting. That's all I got. Thanks.